We're going to continue with the series from Samuel this morning and um, you'll be delighted to know that we've reached the point where we're going to talk about Jonathan and his armour bearer. Now there's going to be a few uh, passages of scripture that we'll be reading together so if you could we may hover around 1 Samuel 14, but it would be primarily 1 Samuel 14, so if you would uh, turn that up and stick your finger in your Bible, uh, then we can open up uh, to that place when it comes. Okay. But before we, before we get into the, the nub of this story, um, it would be helpful just to get the picture to set the scene as to uh, what led up to this particular situation. And so I've, I've put on uh, the screen here a diagram which will help us just get the, get the lead in into the situation which now confronts the children of Israel. We're talking, I don't know if you can see that red spot, can you? We're going to be talking at this juncture where Saul is king and we're going to be talking about his son, Prince Jonathan. Now just to give you the prelude to that situation, I've picked up from the time when Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt and with the Egyptians, Egyptians chasing after them, crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness and of course you all remember the story, the, um, the Egyptians were all drowned as the Red Sea closed behind them. And then the children of Israel, immediately they got themselves into the wilderness, um, started to yearn for what they had been used to back in Egypt uh, and started to grumble and complain about being thirsty and about being hungry and not having meat and all that sort of stuff. And you all know that element of the story. And within a short space of time, Moses led them to Mount Sinai, where of course the Ten Commandments were given. Now the interesting thing is that despite their rebellion at, uh, at, the, um, at Mount Sinai, God then led them this journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, which is a journey of only 11 days walking across a wilderness. And if you remember at Kadesh Barnea, Moses sent out the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, across the Jordan, this is the river Jordan here, across into Canaan to spy out the land which God had promised that he would give to them. And of course you all know the story, they came back with good news. The land was full of milk and honey and good things, but, but they saw a problem. And the problem that they saw was the fact that the people of the land were large in stature. Not that it worries God at all, he created the lot. However, because ten of those spies said they're too big for us, we can't cope with them, the murmurings got through to all the children of Israel and they all started to rebel and they all started to say, no we don't want to go, we don't want to do this. 
And of course, there were only two of those spies that had a positive report. One was Joshua, the other was Caleb. And they said, we can do this, we can, God is on our side, we'll be able to accomplish this. But as a result, as you all know, the rebellion took place and God sent them around this wilderness area wandering for 40 years until every one of them had died including Moses with the exception of Caleb and Joshua and the children that were born during that period of the 40 years in the wilderness. And then Joshua took them across the, uh, the River Jordan and they moved off and they remember they marched around Jericho and they, uh, they saw Jericho fall and God started to give them all that he had promised in the land of Canaan. And for a period of time, God provided leaders for the children of Israel. And those leaders became what we call the judges. And you can remember there were a lot of judges, but some of the more popular ones I've put down here, you remember Gideon and Deborah and Samson, and the last of those judges was Samuel. And Samuel is represented in our story when we pick up with, uh, with, with, it, with Jonathan and, um, and his armour bearer. So Saul, uh, so Saul had been anointed by, uh, by Samuel, even though God didn't want this to happen, he allowed it to happen. In fact, he let that sort of thing proceed, and Saul was made king. Uh, Saul didn't do too well. Um, Saul thought more of himself than he did the capabilities of God. But he had a son, and his son was Prince, if you like, Prince Jonathan. And that's, that's where we're going to pick up the story. You now see the prelude as to what happened, and we get to this point in time. Now, bear in mind, this is about 300 years uh, between there and there. But um, it, it looks like it's a very short space, but at least you've got the picture as to uh, what was going on when the Saul was the very first king of Israel. Okay. At the time... Israel was in a mess. Um, they'd rejected the prophet Samuel. They'd rejected God's leader and they'd created a king or Samuel had anointed uh, uh, Saul king and they now had a king ruling over them. Despite all he warned them about how bad it would be, how they would, he would, the king would take of their sons and would increase taxes, all those sort of things, uh, they said, nevertheless, we want a king, everybody else has got a king, we want a king too. And so that's how Saul came into being. So Saul as the new king really and truly started to gather people to himself. But things went badly wrong when his son, probably a little bit rebellious, like a lot of sons around, uh, even today, um, he went off and uh, he went and had a little uh, skirmish with the Philistines at an outpost called Geba. I think that's the correct pronunciation. And... Um, and now the Philistines were on the warpath, they were coming back at them uh, to try and sort them out. And so we got this situation where Israel is now at war with the Philistines. Now, the situation was a little bit one-sided. Um, 
If you turned to an earlier chapter, 1 Samuel 13, verse 5, we read something of the size of the Philistine army compared with the size of the Israeli army. And if you can see on the left there, the Philistines were, uh, were able to boast for, of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, an uncountable number of soldiers. I think it says in the Bible, as many as the sand on the seashore, meaning an awful lot. Whereas on Israel's side, Saul had split uh, his army into two. He'd kept 2,000 for himself, and he'd allotted 1,000 to his son Jonathan. So it's a rather one-sided affair that we were going to come across here. And whilst this war was going on, they'd moved to a place called Michmash, which is north of Jerusalem, as we'll see on a map in a minute or two. Now there, this Philistine army was in a a stronghold. They'd been operating from a stronghold and they'd been absolutely terrifying the uh, Saul's army. In fact, most of Saul's army, of the, the total of 3,000 there, were so terrified that they'd run away, hidden in rocks, hidden in caves. Uh, some had even crossed the Jordan and gone back into the land on the other side. They were so scared of that situation, which left poor old King Saul uh, with 600 men. So he's now his 600 men have got to face that lot. And there's another factor which kind of biases it even further. There was only two swords in the whole of the army. Jonathan had one and Saul had the other. The rest of the guys were just armed with the odd agricultural axe, probably a pitchfork or two and a load of sticks. Not too good when you come up against 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and innumerable numbers of soldiers. Why did they only have two, two swords amongst them? Well, the Philistines, in their subjugation of Israel, had in fact um, taken command of all the blacksmiths. And uh, therefore there was no one within Israel that could make the weapons for them. Now I think you would agree this is not too encouraging a scene for any military commander. I don't think I would fancy that one myself. So here's one of a detachment with Jonathan who's got a sword and um, there's Saul with his sword and his, his few hundred men uh, in, in, the, um, in Mishmash. Now in this anxious state, awaiting this battle, Saul has been told, King Saul has been told to wait. Wait until Samuel gets there so that he can make the sacrifices to God as the high priest. But Saul, being Saul, is impatient. He's waiting and he's waiting and, Saul, and Samuel doesn't turn up. So in the end he thinks, I've got to do something about this. So he foolishly... Um, decides to offer the sacrifices himself, something which was expressly forbidden by God for the, uh, a lay person to do. But eventually Samuel does turn up. And if you turn with me now just to back to Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 13, 
we'll just read what Samuel thought about uh, what Saul had done. So starting <clears throat> at verse, uh, let's see now, verse 11 of 1 Samuel 13. Just as he'd finished making the offering, that's Saul, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Samuel replied, well, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash, I, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. And as a result, Samuel effectively washed his hands of Saul. He just said, you've had it now. You've, you, you've disobeyed God to such a degree that God is in fact going to push you to one side. <clears throat> now Samuel didn't take that lying down. He decided he'd create his own high priest. He went and, and fought, got somebody called a, a high tube, if I've pronounced that correctly. And a high tube was Ichabod's brother. And Ichabod, as you probably know, means uh, the glory has departed. Pretty bad thing to do. He, he'd got the wrong sort of people around him. But that's not part of our story. Meanwhile, whilst this is going on, Jonathan's off on another of his little skirmishes into Philistine territory. And Jonathan and his armour-bearer, the one that came with him, went off to reconnoitre out the enemy. Now there's a big difference between Saul and his son Jonathan. And the difference was Jonathan trusted God. He knew that no matter what the odds were, God was on his side. And when God's on your side, you're in a majority, no matter what the odds. Saul relied on men. He gathered men around him. Jonathan relied on the strength of God and his faith in him. Now Jonathan never allowed the fact that he was a prince um, go to his head. He was a man who believed in the effectiveness of relationship. And he had a relationship not only with God, he had a relationship with his armour-bearer, this young man that gathered with him. Now we don't even know this armour-bearer's name. It's not recorded. All we know is he was young. All we know is he was brave because armour-bearers were selected usually as an officer from the army for their bravery and their ability to stay cool under pressure and in moments of danger. So Jonathan and this young man had crept up on the, on the Philistine army. Now, remember, Saul and his army are on one side of Mishmash, and Jonathan 
and, and sorry, and the Philistines are on the other side of Mishmash. Whereas Jonathan was down at Gibeah, the one that place just a bit south, Jonathan moves off to come to Mishmash, obviously passes his, his dad, uh, and probably didn't want to speak to him at any rate, and decides to go and have a look at this so-called Philistine army. <clears throat> They'd done it without Saul's knowledge, and they come upon the Philistine camp, which was on the other side of a valley. So there was two high places, a valley in between, obviously Jonathan and his armour-bearer on one side, and the huge Philistine army on the other side. Okay, now this is where the story starts to get good. If we move on to chapter 14, and we'll start reading at verse 6. Jonathan says to his young armour-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Doesn't deter God at all. He, he can cope with it, is what Jonathan's saying there. Yeah, go ahead, do all that's in your mind, the armour-bearer said. I'm with your heart and soul. That's loyalty. Jonathan said, come then, we'll cross over towards the men and we'll let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and, and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up because the Lord... We'll climb up because that will be this, our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Here's a, an illustration of, uh, of them looking up at the, um, at the Philistine hordes. So Jonathan and his armour-bearer... Sorry, I beg your pardon. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. It's not the best way to attack something. It's really and truly, the, the disadvantage is always when you're going up a hill. The high ground always commands the best, the best opportunity for defence and for dealing with, with the enemy. So here they are doing something which is contrary to all common sense. But notice one thing. They say, come on up to us, we'll go. Whereas if they come down to us, we'll stay. And God always wants us to go. Remember the, the uh, Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say, come to our church and we'll make a disciple of you. He said, go and work it out. And here's Jonathan and his armour bearer going at the Lord's direction and with his uh, approval. So there's a powerful story here of two young men completely trusting God, taking on a massive army and doing it the worst possible way, climbing uphill and only one of them's got a sword. Pretty good odds. But I like the way that Jonathan's armour bearer encouraged him to take that risk of faith. 
And despite the fact he put his own life in jeopardy, it was a risk that brought about a great victory for the nation of Israel. Now this passage shows us how working together, working together, can achieve great results if we work under the direction of God. So I want to ask you a question today. What does it take to be a good armour-bearer? I'm not that interested in the kings or the princes because you and I are probably the equivalent of armour-bearers. We're pretty low down the pecking order. And I want to know, what does it take to be an armour-bearer? Well, firstly, working with another with the same heart for God as you have is very powerful, especially when God has directed it. And that's why we suggest to you how useful it is to work in one-to-ones and to work in pairs and to work in group and to develop relationship which is trusting. There are many other examples you you can see in the Bible. We've talked about Moses and Aaron. Um, We've looked at, well, we we won't look at today. We we know about David and Jonathan, uh, David being the next king, as you know. Peter and John, Paul and Barnabas. Even when Jesus sent out uh, the disciples to go go out in the 72, they went out in pairs, in two. It's a powerful weapon that God uses, pairs in relationships. So working with another, consider it. <clears throat> Armour bearers aren't leaders, but their presence is essential. Their presence is vital. Don't ever, ever despise the position that God gives you. Because what God gives you to do, only you can do uniquely well. He's chosen you for whatever he calls you to do. I once had the privilege of of leading the church in Rayleigh. But I was never comfortable. Because I'm not a number one. I know my abilities. I'm a much better adjutant than I am a commanding officer. I like to support. I like to be an armour bearer. It's what God requires of me. And that's what I think he requires of all of us. To be armour bearers, willing to trust our lives into God's hands in order to achieve things on his behalf. Armour bearers stand in faith with men who are leaders. We need to support those that are around us. We need to support good and bad leaders. No matter what your politics may be, you ought to be praying for the Prime Minister. You ought to be praying for the government. You ought to be praying for the Syrian leader in spite of the atrocities that he's allowing to perform in his country. Likewise, you ought to be praying for those that are godly and are pursuing godly things. The Lord requires that of us. The the word tells us about that. 
So just to remind ourselves, armour-bearers are fully committed. They're one heart and one mind with the men that they support. They have an attitude of honouring and preferring others to themselves. They're ready to take risks for God. They want to be used to further God's kingdom. Do you want to be used to further God's kingdom? I'm sure you do. Learn the attitude of an armour-bearer. Armour-bearers are not worried about lack of personal recognition. We don't even know the armour-bearer's name. But he was there, and he slaughtered as many as Jonathan slaughtered behind him. And you know the result. There was a complete and utter rout when Jonathan and his armour-bearer got to the top. Um, he said the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armour bearer followed and killed behind him and in that first attack Jonathan is an armour bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre probably about twice the size of this room something like that 20 men they killed with one sword and a guy behind him. I don't know how his armour bearer killed. He probably strangled them, if nothing else. And then it says, the panic struck in the whole army. And those in the camp and the field, and those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground shook, and the panic was sent by God. It didn't matter what the numbers were. Two men against that horde that we looked at. And they panicked and ran, and they were scattered. And they ran away from Mishmash. And as a result, the Israeli army eventually got up out of their hiding places, chased after them, and there was a great slaughter. And what about Jonathan? Jonathan was a prince, and yet he too was submitted to God's purposes. And despite him having the right to the throne, he was prepared to lay it down. He had a servant's heart, even though he was a prince. And he willingly gave it over to a young shepherd boy. He was older than, than David. But we all know the relationship that he ultimately formed with him, where they formed a covenant which joined their families for generations afterwards and you can read of that yourself uh, when you get to the story of Mephibosheth who was uh, 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 one of the um, grandsons of, sorry, was one of the sons of, of uh, Jonathan later on he was a, a <clears throat> an invalid and uh, because of that even though David was now king he honoured his covenant with that man because of the relationship, the bond that he had with, with Jonathan. So the whole story is just one of unity. It's one of relationship. It's one of laying down one's life to support those that you're in relationship with. It's allowing God to have his way in your life. It's using faith to overcome the odds Believing God, when the odds are impossible, nothing is impossible with God. So let's take heart from that and enjoy that. Amen.